You've heard of Grammarly, and you might think it's a fancy spell check, but people on your team have been using it and loving it for years because it does way more than you realize. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that works seamlessly across apps and websites and can write an instant first draft in a few clicks, not a few hours. When every word your team writes is clear, concise and on brand, companies can save 19 days per employee per year. Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. Hi everyone, I'm Paul Anka. And I'm Skip Bronson. And what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies? You get Our Way, a brand new show from My Heart Podcast, where we chop it up with our pals about everything under the sun. This is our podcast, and we're going to do it our way. Listen to Our Way on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Caroline Hyde at Bloomberg's World Headquarters in New York. This is Bloomberg Technology. Coming up, Apple making headway, bringing its latest moonshot-style project to reality with a focus on glucose tracking. We bring you our Bloomberg exclusive. Meanwhile, a California company again, Tesla announces its chosen Palo Alto for the company's global engineering headquarters. We'll have more on Elon's improving relations with the Golden State. Plus, we stick with autos for an exclusive conversation with the CEO of Mercedes. From EVs to autonomous driving, we'll cover it all. That and so much more coming up, including earnings that finally come from NVIDIA. Let's get into Apple, because actually we saw some gyrations throughout the stock on the day. Look at this peak high at about 2 o'clock. That was New York time. Why? Because we got a scoop. We got, indeed, some exclusive reporting coming from Mark Gurman, who broke a story all regarding the next moonshot coming from Apple, the focus on glucose tracking. Mark Gurman, you're with us. Just talk us through what, indeed, this is going to be. It's all about the watch, right? All about the watch, all about healthcare, all about glucose tracking. Really the holy grail for a smartwatch to be able to tell you all of your health metrics. And one of the most important health metrics, as we all know, is blood sugar or blood glucose monitoring. You want to know how much glucose is in your body because that's an indicator of pre-diabetes or type 2 diabetes or other health conditions. And today, getting that data requires the prick of a skin, right, or a blood draw from your veins. What Apple wants to do is it wants to create a system using chips, sensors, software algorithms built into the Apple Watch to get a read on how much glucose you have in your blood without needing a blood sample. Okay. Everyone that views this show wants to understand the innovation, the actual technology behind this. What is new? How is this different from what's already on the market? Well, two terms I'll give you. One, optical spectroscopy, right? (laughs) And the other, silicon photonics. Those are some pretty hardcore types of technologies that Apple is working on to make this happen, right? This means that the technology will use a chip that can output light or lasers, right, into your skin and read how much glucose is in your what's known as interstitial fluid. That's the fluid that comes out of your blood capillaries, and everyone has that fluid across their body. And it could use lasers, it shoots through your skin, and then it has sensors that could read right the concentration of light in your skin to know how much glucose is there in order to get that reading. 
our innovation hit right there for us, Mark. Interesting, JP Morgan saying for now this isn't a threat to device makers, but what about the people behind this, Mark? Who's building it? Yeah, it's definitely not a threat to device makers right now because this is not going to hit the market probably for another three to five years. So I would agree with JP Morgan that if something is not hitting for three years, it's not going to uh, have an impact. And also after it arrives, right, there is such big market share already from Abbott and Dexcom and other providers. And it's going to take time for Apple to penetrate that market and get the regulation they're looking for. So, you know, I would agree, at least in the short term. In terms of who's behind this, Apple has a secret moonshots team called the Exploratory design group. And this is the team developing this moonshot along with other projects, as well as Apple's health team and hardware engineering and software engineering teams. Fascinating. One of the most read on the terminal on .com, Mark Gurman, as always. We thank you. Let's get to the breaking news that just came. Finally, we've been tracking NVIDIA's earnings. It's sort of post-market reaction as well. To deep dive on the analysis of why it's rising after hours, Bloomberg Intelligence's Mandeep Singh is here with us. More than 7% rally. We like the forecast. Well, so clearly uh, the data center was the focus, and they did quite well. Although it was below consensus, the guidance suggests the data center spend will hold up. And remember, data center is directly tied to the enterprise tech spending and their capex spend. If all the cloud providers are investing, you know, in building more cloud capacity, a lot of that spending is going towards uh, Nvidia's data center spend. And I think that's where market is excited that you know you're not seeing the sort of inventory correction we see. On on the PC side with Intel, you know, cutting their forecasts. That's not the case with enterprise chips. And so far, enterprise tech spending has held up across the board, even when it comes to, you know, software side. And, and that's what you see on the chip side as well. So. so when I think data centers, I think artificial intelligence. I look yep. at the statement and it says AI is at an inflection point, setting up a broad adoption, reaching into every industry. How much is NVIDIA set to benefit? Well, so they are the leaders when it comes to uh, developing these chips for whether it's for ChatGPT or for automotive or anything that has to do with you know parallel processing, a GPU type of chip, you can find a lot of use cases. And that's what they've done well in terms of diversifying that top line. I think Intel's biggest uh, problem is the fact that they were never able to go beyond PCs. Guess what? NVIDIA has done that very well. And they're able to find these new use cases for their GPU chips. Even the gaming seg segment actually did better than expected. Yes, it declined, but you can see once the market has a cyclical rebound, they're positioned very well on the gaming side. So that's why you see that stock reaction. Although I don't know if NVIDIA should be trading at five times market cap of Intel, even though Intel's revenue is two times bigger. So time oh. will tell if uh, valuation could don't be an issue. question valuations, Mandeep. But in notable that Intel today, the news was the slashing of the dividend at a time that we are worried about boom-bust cycles. Anything in NVIDIA that caused you cause for concern? Well, so one is gross margins is very important. This quarter, they went back to mid 60%. Anytime you see a chip company trading at mid 60% gross margin, I'm worried because guess what? As a sector, chip sector doesn't command those high gross margins, those high ASPs. Over time, it gets commoditized, other players catch up, and it's very hard for a chip company to sustain those kind of gross margins without layering on software, which is what NVIDIA's play is. They want more software on their chips. Interesting, we've got breaking news coming from the call. The CFO currently saying that NVIDIA saw orders pause as a timing issue. This is to do with the cloud service providers pausing orders in the fourth quarter. 
What does that signal to you? That is direct CapEx spend from the cloud providers. So, and, and that's uh, the other risk with NVIDIA is the customer concentration. A lot of that data center revenue, which is a $15 billion run rate, is driven by these hyperscalers, which are four or five customers. They are the ones who are building cloud capacity. And we all expect a digestion phase with, when it comes to cloud spending. It's not as if it's not going to come back. But because these companies have been spending uh, you know, CapEx growing at elevated levels, there will be a pause. And it could be a two-quarter pause. It could be four quarters. I think that's where they're talking about uh, probably order growth slowing. We'll let you get back to the call, and everyone will digest it. Always great to get your immediate analysis. Bloomberg Intelligence's Mandeep Singh. The challenge for the industry in the next uh, three to four years is to absorb the additional cost of electrification to protect affordability and make sure that middle classes can buy pure EVs uh, at an affordable price. Does that mean job cuts? It means that we are not excluding anything from the task of absorbing the cost of electrification. Delantis CEO Carlos de Brera is there, saying that the company that makes Jeeps, makes Maseratis, may have to further adapt its industrial footprint in the United States and indeed in Europe as a consequence of the expensive shift to EVs. That's nothing off the table, of course, even additional job cuts to further cut down on costs. So now, let's talk to another key player in the industry. Very pleased to say, Ed, you're standing by with a leader in Mercedes. Yeah, we're joined by Ulla Kalenius, chairman of the management board of Mercedes. We're here in the heart of Silicon Valley, in Sunnyvale. Why, Ulla? Why have you come all this way to talk to me about software? Well, we're here at the tech center in Sunnyvale for Mercedes-Benz that we have had now for more than 25 years. So we have always been here in the valley working with right. innovative tech partners. And we thought it was a fitting place to actually describe what the future of software and the corresponding hardware look like uh, in Mercedes. We have a lot of ground to cover, but I want to start by asking you, how high does software rank as a priority for Mercedes and all of the things you're trying to, to achieve broadly in electrification, but also in autonomous driving? Software is absolutely a core competence for the uh, car of the future. So we have been building up our software competence uh, gradually over the last years. Uh, but this is a space that is so broad that even if you make yourself the architect of your own operating system, you don't have to do everything yourself. You need partnering as well. Well, let's jump into that. So you have announced a, a deeper relationship with Google. And it's a license agreement. You pay Google for help in building out your operating system. Why did you do that instead of taking advantage of open sourced software or just doing it yourself? Uh, the core of the relationship with Google, this strategic partnership that we have formed, is our joint vision of taking technology to the next level. Everybody knows Google Maps, Google Navigation, and of course YouTube on the entertainment side, uh, where we said, what do our customers want? It's all about delivering a superior customer experience. So we sat down with the Google team and said, what can we do together? How can we make navigation in the car go to the next level? And uh, that sparked uh, a deeper conversation, and here we are announcing a partnership today. Marcus Schaefer, your CTO, set out the ultimate goal, which is to have no screen mirroring, no need to plug in the phone. The operating system is all you ever need. But you, you can't get away from the fact that Google through Android Auto or Apple through CarPlay, they are making their own moves into this market. 
How do you reconcile that, Google's own ambitions with your partnership to, and, and your kind of want to take control of the software architecture? If you take a look at the Mercedes now, what it's going to be in the future, first of all, you have this uh, mind-boggling uh, uh, wide screen in the car, and uh, you can present anything and everything on that screen. And this is where we shouldn't make the um, uh, mistake of just looking at infotainment alone, but think about across domains. Infotainment interacting with the assistance system and automated driving. So you can marry navigation with driving assistance and automated uh, driving and create whole new use cases. And only a vehicle manufacturer is in the position to integrate all the different pieces of the vehicle down to you know, uh, immersive experiences, music uh, and entertainment, where you even use the climate control, the scent in the car, uh, uh, the subwoofers in the seat to create 4D sound. All of those things uh, make it a compelling argument to go for an integrated approach. But we don't have an antagonistic relationship with any one of these tech players. Uh, we work with them to take their valuable assets, digital assets, and put it into our system. Uh, so this is really a win-win. As part of that software strategy, are you actively hiring? You know, Google is one example of many names in Silicon Valley that have done layoffs recently. There is a lot of software engineering talent on the market at the moment. We are actively hiring, and whereas we work with software for many, many years, these last three or four or five years have really been a paradigm shift for us where we're going for partial vertical integration. And we set out the target a few years ago to add another 3,000 software engineers to the Mercedes team, and we have uh, almost accomplished that already. But if, uh, if, if we find the right talent in the market that uh, supplements our team, yes, we are hiring. How much of a competitive moat do you feel Mercedes has in the theater of software? Do you think that you are actually going to be able to do this on your own two feet? Uh, absolutely. As an architect of the operating system, yes, uh, we, have, we have laid out uh, what the whole system is uh, uh, supposed to do and is going to be capable of doing. But when you build a software house, you don't have to lay every single brick yourself or put up every single tile in, in the bathroom. And that's why you leverage tech partnerships. You got to be in control as the architect, but leverage tech partnerships and make sure that you work with the best to deliver the ultimate customer experience. Self-driving was another part of today. Thank you for the ride this morning. I went out and took a level three ride using DrivePilot on the freeway. It was limited to a certain extent. What caught my ear during the presentations was 50% of net sales for autonomous software will go to your partner NVIDIA. Talk me through that relationship and why you went that route to develop the compute. Uh, we are the first manufacturer that have certified a level three system that you drove today. So actually true autonomy in this case on the highway in heavy traffic. So now uh, we're taking the first few steps here for uh, individual mobility where really uh, the car is going to give you back the most valuable gift of all. Uh, time. In the relationship with NVIDIA that we formed about three years ago, uh, both parties said here, okay, listen, 
let's take this to the next level. But let's find another business model where both parties invest into the partnership, yes. but also in an intelligent and equitable way can reap benefits from the partnership. So this is a combined risk and reward partnership that we think uh, not only technologically, but economically is going to work really well for both parties. And, you know, it's available in Nevada at the moment. You have a permit. You're awaiting California. You talk about this goal of, of a billion euros of EBIT by, I think, mid-decade, mid generated in part from autonomous software. How big is the market here in the United States for that? Or is this largely going to be driven out of Europe? No, the United States is going to be an important market for us, and it's a growing market. So it's about increasing the envelope and providing more and more use cases in the automated drive space, all the way up then to uh, autonomous drive, level three drive, uh, on the highway, on the interstate. And in fact, uh, the system that we're working on for the next generation, we want to take that well above 100 kilometers an hour, and then it starts becoming really, really relevant if you're going on a longer trip. And do we believe that we can monetize that? Absolutely. Tesla has a very clear approach of how they package full self-driving and autopilot. They've had their own news today, of course. How do you decide, Mercedes, what you charge for and what you don't charge for? You put a lot of emphasis throughout the whole day on the customer experience, this having to be what the customer wants. But ultimately, if you draw up the list, it's a long list of things that you pay for on top of your car. The good thing with MBOS is that the whole car, every single aspect of the car in terms of its electric, electronic architecture, its digital backbone will be over the air reachable. So we can make your car uh, actually become better with time. It's, it doesn't age, it actually gets more functionality over time. Some of the functions, they're gonna be base functions which is just embedded in the basic price of the vehicle, but much of the additional stuff, and especially in the automated driving space, we feel are so attractive right. that they can be monetized. Ola Kalenius, Chairman of the Management Board. Mercedes, thank you for having us here in Sunnyvale, releasing your news out here in California, Caroline. Big emphasis on software, which they say could reach up to $10 billion of sales from a software perspective by the end of the decade. Is something you just got to keep an eye on. I know you will. I know we will. Thanks to you, Ed. And of course, we've got to keep an eye on what's happening over with Tesla as well. Today, refocusing on California. We'll bring you the details of the company's new engineering headquarters in the Golden State. And then let's have a quick check on some of the earnings that come aftermarket and the aftermarket movement, therefore, in stocks. eBay, the one we shine a light on. Now, that's Tesla after hours. I want to flick it on to what's happening with eBay after hours because we did see fourth quarter net revenue beating expectations. Their forward-looking guidance also beating expectations, but not enough. Seven straight quarters of active buyers on the downside. And even though this looks like it might be a pivot point in terms of its sales, it's not enough for investors. We're currently falling for eBay after hours. We're bringing those shares in a moment. From New York, from San Francisco, this is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. 
And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. Good song. The Johnny Carson theme, right? Hey, who wrote that? Skip, who do you think? It's your buddy. Hi, everyone. I'm Paul Anka. And I'm Skip Bronson. And what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies? You get our way, a brand new show from My Heart Podcast, where we chop it up with our pals about everything under the sun. Hear about Michael Bublé's entrance into show business. And get business insight from Mark Burnett. Find out what scares my son-in-law, Jason Bateman. And discover the bragging rights that come with beating Michael Jordan at golf. Together, we know just about everything. Everybody, including sitting presidents. So join us as we ask the questions they've not been asked before, tell it like it is, and even sing a song or two. This is our podcast, and we're going to do it our way. Listen to Our Way on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. politics. Elon Musk and Gavin Newsom announcing a new Tesla Global Engineering headquarters in Palo Alto, California earlier today. A sign of, well, at least some cooperation between the electric vehicle maker and the state it once called home. Joining us for more is Bloomberg's Dana Hull. And is this a sort of thawing of relations? Because I thought Tesla hot-footed it out of California in 2021. Well, that's what everyone thinks. I mean, the company moved its corporate headquarters to Austin, Texas, but it still has over 47,000 employees in California, including many engineers, its autopilot team. And then the announcement today is just kind of a proof point that, like, you know, Tesla is still very much a California company, even if their corporate headquarters and their new factory is in Texas. Exactly what Gavin Newsom said. It's a California company, 47,000 employees still here. But he has been known to criticize Elon Musk, the tax system, the, uh, the liberal politics. Will he continue to do that? I'm sorry, Newsom has not criticized Musk directly, but the two have definitely had a bit of, you know, there was definitely, it was definitely a big blow to California when Tesla moved its headquarters to Texas. Um, and Newsom has been very careful not to criticize Musk directly, but, you know, we're sort of in, at this point in the culture wars where California and Texas are often pitted against each other. And I think what we're seeing today is that Tesla and Musk himself somewhat rarely are making a point that they are still very much here in California, they are hiring in California, they're engineering headquarters is in Palo Alto and it was kind of a weird announcement. It was relatively short, very few details, but uh, significant nonetheless. It's the first time that I can recall seeing Newsom and Musk together in the same place in like over a decade. Yeah, sorry to, to make clear, sort of Musk has been the critique here, the, the, the criticizer and, and not Gavin Newsom. But in fact, he was sort of praising the CEO, right? Calling him a visionary spirit and for his record of innovation. What more are we expecting out of California from Tesla at the moment? 
Well, Tesla is expanding here. I mean, they have this huge megapack facility in Lathrop where they're building their massive batteries that they're selling to utilities, this engineering headquarters. Uh, you know, it's basically Tesla is kind of moving its engineering team to the old uh, Hewlett-Packard offices in Palo Alto. Um, I mean, I think you're just going to continue to see the company grow and expand both here and in Texas. And, you know, Musk is very sort of adroitly playing both sides of the aisle um, in terms of the politics and the, and the optics of all of this. It's always about politics and optics sometimes, and Dana Hull breaks it all down for us. We thank you so much. I'm X, and from this moment on, I'm going to be your own personal AI DJ on Spotify. Let's go. Move over, ChatGPT. Here's the generative AI you've been waiting for, your own personalized DJ. Spotify is leaning in to generative AI just as the trend is hot. Think how good your weekly Discover mixtape is or your year wrapped. But what's new is this generative AI part because the DJ's gonna be able to give you context and commentary as to why you like a song and harp in on your likes and move away from your dislikes. All right, Max, let's get you out of your feels and switch up the vibe. The you voice the that the DJ like uses, it's really authentic. The actual voice is based upon the head of cultural partnerships. Spotify was my dream company to work for and now to be the voice for so many people and give context to how they listen, give them fun facts, about the artists and about how they listen and to just serve it up for them, for me is a dream come true. What it did was create an additional opportunity. So I see this as creating a lot more opportunities for creators such as myself to be heard and for your talent to be used in with AI. You need, you need the human inputs into AI to really do it right, where you can connect and be authentic and have that sincerity. So for me, I think it presents more opportunities as opposed to taking them away. This really could be the future, perhaps, of discoverability in terms of music. Welcome back to Bloomberg Technology. I'm Caroline Hyde in New York. And well, Spotify there, perhaps sounding pretty optimistic about its AI DJ. But generative AI has had its share of blunders, perhaps. For instance, some journalists recently encountered some strange behavior when interacting with Microsoft's preview release of its own chatbot this month. And it turns out, look, that Microsoft has already spent months trying to fix the disturbing responses, which apparently many date as far back as November. And it seems to center on a version of Microsoft that dubbed Sydney, an older model of the Bing chatbot that the company tested prior to its release this month. Some of those strange interactions were posted on the company's online forum. In some instances, Sydney responded with comments like, you're either desperate or delusional. Or, in response to a query asking how to give feedback about its performance, the bot is said to have answered, I do not learn or change from your feedback. I am perfect and superior. How worrying is that? Let's dig into all of it. Emily Bender is with us, professor of linguistics at the University of Washington, focusing in many ways on artificial intelligence, on big data. You, of course, have a real focus point in particular on, on computational linguistics. And therefore, professor, what do you make of this? Some call it hype, some call it panic and worry, some call it just investigative journalism. What do you make of some of the encounters that people seem to be having with Bing? 
So I think there's two things to keep in mind when you have a disturbing encounter with one of these chatbots. You can worry that the chatbot itself is malevolent or sinister, or you can take a step back and see that the real issue is that people might be taking it as something that has communicative intent and can be trying to convey meaning, when in fact, when the output of a chatbot seems to make sense, it's because we're the ones making sense of it. It has no meaning, it has no mind, it's just spitting back language based on the patterns in its training data. So it's a reflection of us in some ways. What then could Microsoft be doing to better educate us on that? So I think there's some design choices that could be made. The fact that they have this machine speaking with the first person is problematic because that really encourages people to see it as an entity, as a mind when it's not. Um, and the second thing I think is to really think about when is it appropriate to allow synthetic text out into the world? Um, do you want as a company to take responsibility for the confabulations of these chatbots? In many ways, they've tried to highlight the limitations. The fact also this is kind of in beta, it's, it's pre being worked through the original few people have been selected to work with it in a preview format. Do you think ultimately it's embedding in search is a good thing? I really don't. I think that, that chatbots are not what we need for search. They might be what we think we want. We've been trained by decades of science fiction to imagine that there's a future where there's an all-knowing computer that we can just ask questions of and get the answers. But in fact, what I learned from my colleagues in the information school is that what we really need when we have an information need is a system that will help us find information sources, but give us those sources directly so that we can evaluate them and also progressively increase our own information literacy. There is a startup, actually. We've interviewed Neva, who always sort of tells you where the information's originally from. Could that be an easy fix, do you think, ultimately, a way in which that brings transparency of where the information's arising? It depends a lot on the design of the system. So if the system is we're going to go get some documents and then produce a summary with pointers to those documents, that's better, although those summaries can still have very strange artifacts in them and people aren't always going to go double check in the source documents. Mm. If, on the other hand, it's we're going to prevent this, present this answer and then, oh, by the way, generate some citations, those ones can be fake and made up and not where the information is really coming from. And so that absolutely doesn't solve the problem. Um, you're putting out a lot of research. You're also putting out a fair few takedowns on various platforms, social media ones. Professor, is anyone coming to you for advice from these companies? You know, surprisingly few. Um, I do sometimes get people asking me if I can help them design their system. Um, usually that request comes as if I would do it for free instead of as a consultant, so my answer is no. Um, but I really do hope that by putting information out there both in published research and in my social media activity, I'm helping people ask these questions for themselves and take a critical view of so-called AI technology. What about a critical view coming from the government? From, is that where we should be having some of the monitoring? I think we really do need to develop some good regulations as a society. What guardrails do we want on this technology? What do we want to allow in terms of massive collections of data, in terms of systems that can just output text that we might encounter and not know that it was synthetic? There's a real risk to pollution of our information ecosystem. And I think that that's a societal concern that demands societal action. Coming from the UK, I've seen sort of discussions being brought from private and public partnership basis. They've tried to have government involved from an early day. Do you think ultimately some of the 
viewpoints from innovation can be heard at the same time as having the guardrails that are necessary, particularly from an ethics perspective? I think we do want to have a broad conversation as we're designing regulations. And um, we don't want to put ourselves in a situation where you can't build anything new. On the other hand, I think that we also need to be able to say before something is put out into the world, even as beta, um, what requirements do we have about um, transparency about how it's been evaluated so far, transparency about where its data comes from, and so on. And I think that there's a, there is a happy medium to be found there. Um, and it is one that is probably best served by having a broadly educated public so that we can all contribute to this discussion. Thanks for educating us now, Emily Bender, linguistics My professor pleasure. at the University of Washington. We thank you. And of course, there's some more news that we've been seeing out there from JP Morgan Chase. It's restricted its staff's use of ChatGPT, according to a person familiar with the matter. Now, the move impacts employees across the firm and reflects normal controls around third-party software rather than being triggered by any specific incident. And interestingly, we took it to you, our own audience. We asked you whether you believe this will become more standard across industries. You said, no, companies should embrace the new technology. So no, 53% think ultimately companies should be using ChatGPT, I'm afraid, JP Morgan. Meanwhile, coming up, we continue our conversation on AI and speak with Isabel Friedheim, co-founder of Magnify, an artificial intelligence and machine learning company. And as we look towards the break, let's take a look at Etsy, another company that's just reported after hours. Relief, fourth quarter revenue, showing growth up more than 5% after hours. This is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. Good song. The Johnny Carson theme, right? Hey, who wrote that? Skip, who do you think? It's your buddy. Hi, everyone. I'm Paul Anka. And I'm Skip Bronson. And what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies? You get Our Way, a brand new show from My Heart Podcast, where we chop it up with our pals about everything under the sun. Hear about Michael Bublé's entrance into show business. And get business insight from Mark Burnett. Find out what scares my son-in-law, Jason Bateman. And discover the bragging rights that come with beating Michael Jordan at golf. Together, we know just about everything everybody including sitting presidents so join us as we ask the questions they've not been asked before tell it like it is and even sing a song or two 
This is our podcast, and we're going to do it our way. Listen to Our Way on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Bloomberg Technology. I'm Caroline Hyde in New York. Let's have a little look at what's happening with the world of NVIDIA right now, because, of course, numbers did, well, show some relief. In particular, this is a company that's talking up its game in artificial intelligence. They're seeing overall that the results easing concerns over inventory levels, but also the data center still perhaps showing ultimate weakness from year over year, but showing that this is a company that continues to thrive from an enterprise sales perspective. We were hearing that from our very own Mandeep Singh. So this is a company that really does continue to fire on cylinders when it comes to the ultimate enterprise part of the business. Artificial intelligence at a turning point, according to the CEO, and definitely wanting to be leaning into that part of the equation. We're up 8% after hours, a stock that's already up 40% since January. Now, let's continue our conversation. Actually, we've got a bit of an AI expert with us. She co-founded an artificial intelligence machine learning fintech company called Magnify. Isabel Friedheim. But also, what's really interesting about Isabel, she's well, the founder of one of the only all-women-led SPAC, that special purpose acquisition company, Networks. I'm pleased to say she joins us now. And Isabel, I'm not going to spend long on it, but considering artificial intelligence is just everything the market is discussing, the hype, the reality, how much have actually you been building an AI already? Yes, I think so many companies are using AI now. And there's one thing that's really irrefutable, and it is that corporate America really sits upon antiquated technology. And by that, I mean that if you look at across almost any industry, legacy companies that are the market leaders are incredibly asset heavy and have yet to adopt technological innovation. So you see that by looking at successful new market entrants like Magnify and others and how asset lights they are. And you see that new companies leverage and capitalize their efficiencies on technologies that are available. And they do that in their business models, they do that in their go-to-market strategy, and there's tremendous value to be created by investing wisely on, on that convergence. You've been investing I'm sure wisely, but certainly you think wisely when you're a VC, of course, Castle VC. I'm interested in why special purpose acquisition companies are a way to invest at this moment, considering the amount of, well, hits they've taken from a PR perspective, shall I call it? Yeah, I mean, look, we, as a SPAC, we look for, for great companies that have what I described earlier, scalable and innovative technologies. They have attractive business models and attractive go-to-market strategies that are going to prove to be uh, really wonderful investments by virtue of the differentiated value that they're going to provide. And, um, and by the way, a lot of those companies contribute to the standard of living, and this is what we invest in in our SPACs. Okay, so at Athena, you're supported by an advisory board, women-led, founders, operators, venture capitalists, investment bankers. Who is in your network and why do they want to help? Yeah, we are all women, but frankly, my, my approach has been that the fact that we are all women is neither here nor there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what we have done is we have put together what we believe is the most formidable SPAC platform with 30 or so executives across vehicles that have been on boards of companies such as Citigroup, um, Oracle, Comcast, Edna, Johnson & Johnson, American Airlines, 
WeWork, BlackRock, and, and many more public and private companies. We've had founders of companies. We had the co-founder of Guilds, the co-founder of Shift, a company that also went public through SPAC. A dozen of founders of companies whose names you would recognize. And we've had multiple vehicles. For example, we had a vertical consumer vehicle where we had the former US CEO of De Beers, former president of Givenchy, former CEO of Steinmarts, former president of Old Navy, former CEO of Peapod, grocery delivery company that had a billion in revenues. We had regulators. Um, so these are all accomplished leaders that help our combination partners and who are on our boards and and um, and really create long-term um, value and provide a full platform yeah. that the combination partners can leverage on. How hard has that been to persuade public market investors in SPACs? I mean, look, the SPAC market has been, first you have to understand the specific market environment that created where we are, the, 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 the environment where we are now. Um, the proliferation of SPACs in particular, three years ago, interest rates were low and investors were seeking yields and we saw a number of SPACs that came to market, yet um, many have liquidated. In the last 12 months, 158 SPACs have liquidated. That's a lot. Um, now today, we're facing, again, fear of inflation, rising interest rates, a Fed that had a its credibility somewhat tarnished and equity markets that really took a hit and particularly corrected were the risks on investments that investors are willing to take. So half of the SPAC deals that closed in 2020 and 2021 had very little revenues uh, or if no revenues for some and they got crushed. Um, and that's not unique to SPACs. If you look at IPOs, same, you know, IPOs and SPACs that went public in 2020 and 2021 are all down 45%. So, that doesn't mean they were bad companies, but the investment community moved from risk on to risk off. So do you have to wait for the pendulum to swing back? Or how can you now look for new targets, new companies that you think even in a more difficult macroeconomic environment can thrive? Yeah, I mean, I think I think this is uh, this is what we're going to continue to see in in 2023, and we're going to continue to see a lot of liquidations, mm -hmm. and because we still have this volume of specs, I think we're going to see, continue to see um, a pickup in the pace of announced deals, and we're starting to see that right now uh, in our own specs and and for others, because there's a backlog of companies that wants to access capital, and relative to private equity and venture capital, specs are providing really an opening of a window into what is the largest pool of investors in the world. So if you look at 2022, for example, there were under 20 IPOs, but 200 SPAC deals, about 100 that closed and about 100 that were announced. So it remains a way to go public. So I, I anticipate that this will continue. Fascinating around the world of special purpose acquisition companies as well. Friedheim, thank you for coming on, discussing all the work at Athena and of course your background. Some news about predicting no more layoffs over at the parent of Facebook, but Meta is apparently planning another round of job cuts and reshuffling thousands of employees. That's all according to reporting from the Washington Post, we might add. Meta plans to push some leaders into lower level roles without direct reports, flattening the layers of management between Meta CEO Mark Zuckerberg and the company's interns. 
That's a Washington Post report. Meanwhile, staying with social media and turning to the Supreme Court's hearings over Section 230. Police say we can dig in a little bit more to what's being heard in terms of Twitter today. Yesterday, of course, it was Google versus Gonzalez. We're joined now by a former tech executive who currently teaches privacy, data and cybersecurity over the UCLA School of Law. Welcome, Professor Alex Olbin. Thank you very much indeed for joining us, Alex. And just remind us, it's been day two that we've been hearing questions around really to Section 230, the protection it gives technology companies, and in many ways against anti-terrorism laws in particular. The argument today was what? That Twitter should have been taking down certain content to prevent what happened in Istanbul. That's correct. The argument in the court today was that Twitter was not vigorous enough in taking down content. And I kind of find that somewhat amusing because a lot of the criticism of uh, Twitter and the other social media companies over the past year or so has been that they censor Hmm. content that is available on those media platforms. So the fact that they are now being criticized for not being vigorous enough uh, to me really points out how difficult this whole area of content moderation is on social media and to that end it's become politicized on to broad brush strokes here on the right on the republican side there's an argument that they don't want conservative viewpoints taken down on the democrat side it's more about that they shouldn't be putting leaving certain content up and should be putting it down quickly harassment hate speech and the like how much has the supreme court been weighing in and, and should they be They've been asking pretty good questions, and I would say if you had to read tea leaves right now, I think the court as a whole is skeptical that you can just rip out this layer of Internet recommendations and the world would function normally. Uh, When you think about it, if you took out the recommendations that are really based on the user's own preferences and the user's own viewing habits, Mm. then what would we be left with? Just every time a user comes to a page, they have to do a new search and they don't know what kind of content will come up. Talk to us about Silicon Valley or social media companies writ large's response to this. Many have argued, look, we need this protection, obviously, because there'd be a flood of legal issues that they'd face, but not just big companies, small ones too. You know, Section 230 came about in 1995, 96, and it was in response to a case where Prodigy, if you remember that far (laughs) back, was an online network, and they were held liable for a defamatory post that was made on the Prodigy service. And it occurred to Congress at the time, and I think this was a correct decision, that an internet ISP or a big web platform is really more like a newsstand or a bookstore. They're not publishing the content. They are making it available. Now, the really interesting aspect of this case is that YouTube has a recommendation algorithm, as many other services do. And so when you search for something, it's going to recommend several videos and a string of videos. But those recommendations are not actually technically made by an editor at YouTube. They are based on what the user has looked at before. And then they're based on what the most popular videos have been on that subject. So I think it's really not an editorial function per se. But can anything be done? We look to Europe, we see some of the rules that are going to come into place in 2024. Ultimately, is there something that the Supreme Court or indeed Congress could do to make the searching less involved in hate speech? Well, 
What I think we could do is have more transparency as to how the algorithm actually works. That would be good. And then we could actually give users more control. Let's say you could have settings that said, I want to hear more of the things that I like, or I want to hear more of the things that I don't like, or just give me a random news feed. Um, Facebook actually does a version of this in the news feed where you can highlight certain friends and yeah. de-emphasize other friends. And I think that giving users control over the content that's recommended is the way to go. Great to speak with you, Professor Alex Elvin, of course, of UCLA Law. That does it Thanks for this so edition. Thank you of Bloomberg Technology. Do not forget to check us out on podcast. You can go cross-platform, of course. We're on various of the social media platforms, but check us out on our podcast. We've got on Apple, on Spotify, on iHeart. There'll be plenty more in terms of the digestion of the stock market moves after hours too. From New York, this is Bloomberg. Hi, everyone. I'm Paul Anka. And I'm Skip Bronson. And what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies? You get our way, a brand new show from My Heart Podcast, where we chop it up with our pals about everything under the sun. This is our podcast, and we're going to do it our way. Listen to Our Way on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.